edition of Taboo Talk with Jay Louder. Today's guest is a former police officer. Matter of fact, it's the first police officer that we've had as on a podcast, and we've had a lot of different guests from a lot of different walks of life. In the last few years, we have seen that police officers have kind of taken a hit. There have been a lot of things negative that have been said in the media. Matter of fact, I think about on Sunday, my pastor said that there were over 800,000 and that includes police officers, all, all people in that line of work in the United States. But what we often see in the media is they'll take one or two bad apples and then they will try to paint a picture that portrays all policemen as bad. Of course, there's bad apples in any group or any profession. But another thing that people don't often realize, and I have a close friend who worked for the sheriff's department and undercover a lot of folks don't realize the trauma, the real dark side of humanity that police officers see. So, Norm, welcome to today's podcast. I'm really excited to have you on. Uh, thank you. I'm honored to be here. You know, earlier today, I, I haven't had a chance to read all of your book, but I have read some of it. And I've done a lot of research on you. And it's your story, honestly, is so amazing. And matter of fact, for our listeners, let me just tell you, this is going to be part one of a two-part podcast. I don't even know how we're going to get all of Norm's story in two podcasts, but somehow we're going to attempt to do that. So when you talk about somebody who has been through it all, not only seen the dark side of humanity, but someone who's been through every level of brokenness, whether that's with kids, whether that's with marriage, whether that's in a profession, whether that's even in personal, physical problems. Norm has dealt with it all. So, Norm, there's so much to unpack here. Let's just start off with here. Tell us about your family life prior to becoming a police officer. Did you grow up in a Christian home? Tell us a little bit about that. Okay. Yes, I did grow up into what was we claimed was a Christian home in a level of income. So we were doing pretty good. But I believe that I was raised in like what most children are raised, right? We, we claim to be Christian, but we went to, to church maybe once a year, sometimes twice a year on Easter and, and maybe Christmas Eve. And we didn't talk about God. I didn't know anything about God. And all I know is I remember a prayer that my mom taught me in Germany. And, and that was it from, from Christianity, you know, and I grew up in that, that household and we prayed, but that there was no teaching about who God is at all. So, but if somebody would have asked you, you would have said that you were a believer. Is that correct? Or would you have said, no, you're not? At the young age, yes, I would have said yes. But, and uh, then when, after I became a police officer, then it, it, it all changed. That's a, a common thing, I think, is it not? There are a lot of police officers and people who are in law enforcement it, it, would that be true that a lot of them, I've heard that, I don't know if it's accurate, that a lot of them do struggle with a belief in God just because of the evil that they see? It, exactly, and that's what happened to me. You know, I went in thinking I'm doing God's work and, and saving the world, and then when as soon as you see um, all that the devil has to, to dish out, it gets crazy. So, yes, with my experience, not many were firm believers. A lot of guys I saw go to church, but I would say over 50% were basically non-believers or at least like I was agnostic. Right. Well, and there's a lot of people, that's kind of American culture, that it's apple yeah. pie, the American flag, and a intellectual belief in God. And yeah, we're a Christian because we're, we're, we're decent people. And when you talk about seeing the darker side of life, I mean, I think about just some of the things that I read in your book, everything ranging from a lady who shot one of your fellow officers in the forehead to a man who killed himself and his two young boys to a plane crash where I can't, I think it was 14 people died. I mean, you, you've literally seen the worst of the worst of the worst. And there's nothing at all that can prepare you for it. Nothing. I mean, there, when I went to the police academy, 
there was a three hour block on stress relief, which was eating right and exercising. And that was it. You know, it didn't stay anywhere in the perspective, Hey, join, join here and, and get PTSD. You know, it was, it's, there, there is no way to prepare for it. And that's why I'm going out talking about it because I want guys to, to understand that there is healing and there is hope. And even if you're a brand new recruit, you know, to build up that resilience. So I'm so grateful that you're doing shows like this to prepare people. Well, when I read about some of the things that you saw, and that didn't even include the, just the carnage, the physical abuse, the sexual abuse, the list goes on and on and on. It actually made me think about a guy by the name of Anton LaVey. He's now deceased, but he wrote the Satanic Bible, and he was actually a paramedic. And in his story, he said that when he saw what human beings could do to one another, that was when he disavowed God. So it, it's not not surprising that when you see what you have saw, I, I guess— when you see that, do you get to a point, or do you ever get to a point when you get calloused, when it no longer bothers you, when you're able to leave it at work and go home, or does it just always stick with you? Or does that really depend on the individual? Well, I think it depends on the individual. With me, I always took it home, although I never said anything at home. I remember, I hate to even admit this, but I remember spending evenings after everybody went to bed, going downstairs and, and, and crying. You know, just because I didn't know how to handle it. But there are guys out there that are able to compartmentalize and just not feel, right? And that's why you see a lot on um, firemen and nurses and stuff. They have a a really horrible sense of humor, right? Uh, the, The sense of humor is condescending towards the victim and stuff because that's the only way that they can really deal with their issues of, of what they see, you know, because as humans, I didn't create us to see this and to, to experience this. And, you know, that the human nature is always to respond in a sinful way when we try to cope with these things. Yeah. It's a coping mechanism. Just out of curiosity, mm-hmm. did you ever know any other officers? And I know that you were a patrolman, you were on the SWAT team, but did you ever know any officers that were committed believers? I mean, true believers that were trying to live for God? You know, no. Um, uh, what there was one guy that actually became a born again believer um, towards the end of my career, and it, it, this is the the meanest thing. And I look back and I regret it. But a lot of us made fun of him. You know, like, come on, man, really? You know, and um, but you you know, a lot of us have to reach the bottom of the barrel before we can actually look up at, at him, right? Because as my career was going really well, and, you know, my, my mental state wasn't, but my career was going very well, we believe that under our own, you know, power that we're doing it, that, that it's, it's my abilities, it's my smarts that's getting me to it. We don't think about God, right? But when I look back now and I see some of the dangerous situations that I've been in, I, I see God's fingerprints all over it. Yeah. But, yeah, um, a few have and a few, few got ridiculed. And it was kind of at my police department, the first one I worked at, it was the kind of the, the joke that, okay, if you go to this certain church, you're on the fast track for promotion because that's where the chief went. You know, so those were the things that most of us discussed. Not God, but, but where to go to get promoted. Right. What led you in the first place to want to be a police officer? You know, my dad owned an auto repair shop, and so I worked from the age of like 14 at this auto repair shop. I love cars. I raced cars when I, I started racing cars when I was 17, 18. I just loved cars. But the more I got into it, and my dad eventually retired, and owning your own business isn't really what it's cracked up to be. At least it wasn't for me. And I thought there was something else out there. So what I did is I, police officer, I don't know if this is all over the country, but we had a police ride-along, it's called. So you could sit in the police car with an officer and go with them and see, you know, what they do all day. So I went on a couple ride-alongs, and I loved it. And I felt it was a calling. I felt that this is what I want to do. So I, I put myself through the academy, and um, we sold the business. My dad kept the property, and there I was at, at 24. Well, I started off as a reserve officer first to kind of to get my toes wet. And reserve officer is basically an officer that works under a, a – a, certified police officer under their supervision for free. So I did that for almost two years and I said, I loved it. So I put myself to the Academy 
and got hired right off the bat. And so you were a patrolman for how long? Oh, I was only a patrolman for me three years, maybe before when I first started and then two or three years afterwards. And then is that when you joined the SWAT team or is that when you went undercover? Kind of walk us through that, well, the, the progression okay. of the yeah, ladder. So, so, so first you start on patrol and then you move from there. So after you prove yourself in patrol, I went to five years of traffic enforcement. And uh, traffic enforcement, I, I thought was going to be a lot of fun. And yes, it's one of those guys that, you know, gives you guys tickets and stuff. And that was the bad part. But it gave me a lot of time to, to do the things that I like to do. So early in my career, I developed an expertise for narcotics. You know, it was my opinion at that time through, through the things that I was learning that drugs was the fuel of the majority of the crime, right? Guys aren't breaking into your car and, and, and stealing your car to, to live in a gated community. You know, what they're doing is they're feeding their addictions and they're not selling drugs all the time just to get rich because none of them are. They're feeding it to um, feed their habit, right? right? So I thought that was the, the evil scourge. And what happened was I developed an expertise in working on narcotics. One of my first books I wrote in early as 97 was the Patrol Officer's Guide to Narcotic Enforcement. So I was basically teaching uh, patrol guys how to ar arrest people for narcotics. So as I worked in traffic, you know, I, I did my traffic duties, and then in between, I would look for a, arrest for drug arrests and stuff. But the traffic, as I think, what really did me in because traffic officers are responsible for investigating traffic accidents, every, everything from minor to fatalities. And during that, those few years there, when I worked, we had um, I think it was like twelve or thirteen fatalities a year. We had some railroad tracks running through the city that. We, we had uh, train versus pedestrian accidents, all these things that we had to take. And, you know, no one, like I said earlier, no one really prepares you to see the things that you see. You know, when you, um, one of the traffic accidents, a person was beheaded. Another traffic accident, a child was killed. You know, another accident of a, a, a female walking on the, the railroad tracks got hit by a train doing 60 miles an hour. I mean, you can imagine what the, that train does to the body and then we have to help the coroner pick up the pieces you know it just doesn't prepare you and there i mean even afterwards i mean what, what do you do we know we're never taught from so you go from that from seeing that and then writing the report so your, your brain goes over it again and then you go to the next call oh there's a, a minor traffic accident at this intersection you got to go take and so there's no chance to process there's no chance to uh, reflect on what happened. And I'm not whining or sniveling about it. This, this is what every single police officer goes through every day. I understand it's changing now, um, but the guys that I speak to are saying, no, it's, it's still the same. You know, it's you, you just, there's, there's, there's no time to process or reflect on, on the things that you've seen. Right. So you were a patrolman and then you worked narcotics and then was SWAT? Well, I work, uh, go ahead. I worked traffic. I worked traffic, and that was a five-year um, program. And then during that time, I worked SWAT. So you can, it's, we didn't have a full-time SWAT um, team. So when something happened, you got called off your shift to, to go and respond as a SWAT officer. So I did eight years of that at the police department. Then I did three years in narcotics, and then back to patrol before I decided I had enough of patrol. Uh -huh. What made you decide to go back to patrol? Just too, too much, I mean, the uh, narcotics? I had to. Yeah, you, you do three year rotation and then you have to go back. Is that, uh, which why do they do that? I mean, what's the is there a certain rule on that that? Yeah, know? yeah. And looking back, looking back now, it, it, it's a good rule because you don't want to get too. It, it's a it's a it's a very different type of job, right? Because if if you're out there working undercover and, and trying to buy drugs or or, or speak to informants, you're working with the, really the underbelly of everything, right? And one, one of my guys that I worked with, he, um, he, he let himself go too deep into that, and he ended up getting fired, and then a couple of days later, he ended up committing suicide over it. You know, so th there's a, a fine line um, that you have to balance on, and so three years, I would say, is, is good. Five years would probably be better because you have to build up an expertise. But you see a lot of stuff in narcotics, too. That's when I saw 
the child neglect, the child abuse kind of stuff. And I've never taken so many kids away from their parents as I did in narcotics because you go to a house, you see the drugs, and then you look in the fridge and there's just nothing. And they've got two kids and there's feces on the floor. And, you know, it's um, very stressful to order a child removed from the home um, and to watch them cry and scream for their mom, even though that you know it's the best for them. You know, the child always, always loves their parents. So it was very difficult in that sense, too. Yeah, it makes sense. I think his name was Sonny, but I heard a story one time or actually watched a documentary on it, a guy that went undercover to infiltrate the Hells Angels. And he talked about mm. the years of doing this and how yeah. it got to the point where literally he did everything. I mean, he he, he was literally a Hells Angel, not just as a undercover guy, but I mean, his mentality, his thought process, developing a criminal mind. So, so it makes sense. Now in the midst of all this that you're seeing, and, and as we said numerous times, just the most grisly carnage a person can possibly fathom. There are other issues going on. You've got a daughter who um, I know had needed a bone marrow transplant. I know eventually she had some tumors, on top of that, you yeah. have some physical issues of your own. Yeah. On top of that, yeah. you're going through a, you went through a divorce. So yeah. I, I presume that all these things, and matter of fact, tell our listeners, what was this physical condition? I saw a picture in your book of your feet and I could not mm. believe that was your feet. So what was, what is that condition? Well, in, in 1998, when I decided to go to a state narcotics position, I, I don't know why this happened, but all of a sudden I just started developing these blisters under my feet, which are really all, they're called ulcers. So it is diagnosed as um, peripheral neuropathy. So it's the same thing that a lot of diabetics end up getting, but I'm not a diabetic. So um, all these, these blisters form. And then a couple months later, they found out that I had another disease, which was called Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease which is an atrophy of the muscles in the limb. So the neuropathy is a, a deadening of the nerves in the extremities, and this was a deadening of the muscles in the extremities. So what, what happened was I kept getting these huge ulcers on the bottom of my feet, and normally I would just I would work through them, and you know after I'd have to change my socks two, three times a day because it just blood soaked. I mean, they just, you know, because... This is very difficult to understand, but in the police culture, and I'm going to throw in the fire, the veterans, um, you know, military vets, uh, doctors, and emergency room doctors and nurses, it's a different kind of culture, right? It's a, more of a warrior culture, a culture that, you know, you have to work through the pain. You have to work through your mental distresses that are at home. You have to work through any kind of physical pain that you have in order to complete the job. Right. And if you show any sign of weakness, at least at least at this time, that during that time, which was the 90s and early 2000s, if you show any sign of weakness, then you're basically going to be shunned. Right. Guys aren't going to want to work with you. So when when there's a say a call of a shooting and um, and, and I would and they, they think I'm weak, they're going to do anything they can not to let me come to the to the call because they think that I'm going to get them you know, shot and killed, or, you know, I, I might do something worse. So that's the culture where you can't ask for help. Because the first, if I would, people ask me all the time, why didn't you just ask for help? And if I would have asked for help from my chief, he would have let me see what's called the city doctor, right? So this is a doctor that's on the payroll from the city or the state. I work later for the state. But if I would have been honest with them and said, yeah, last night I put a gun in my mouth and I was really seriously contemplating suicide, as soon as I walked out that door, the first call would be to the chief. And then the, the second call, the, the first call the chief makes would be to me to take my gun and my badge and put me off duty. Well, that was probably the best case scenario for me, but it, it would be a career ender. There was no way I could go back to work at that police department because um, everybody would know and everybody would you know, laugh. And it's it's not because it's not because they're mean. It's because that's the, the way the culture. Yeah. yeah well, yeah, yeah, and a lot, lot of things. But it's also uh, an uh, other officers will see their vulnerabilities in that also, right? So, man, because I'm a big guy. I, back then, I was uh, six six three. I weighed two forty uh, muscle, and you know, so 
if it could happen to a big guy like me, well, why couldn't it happen to them? You, you see what I'm saying? It's, it's sure. a fear of, of kind of realizing that, man, police work is dangerous and not just police work, but life itself. I mean, this had nothing to do with police work. You know, this was all a genetic illness that I had. Yeah, well, I understand even, I've never been a police officer, but even in, with what I do as a preacher, there's a, a lot of yeah. similarity um, where as a preacher, well, man, you're supposed to have it all together, no signs of weakness, and yeah, I, I, I get that. So your life is unraveling. Now, you couldn't say anything to fellow officers or the chief. Were you able to go home and talk to your wife and say, listen, you know, these are some things that are going on? Or was that a pride issue, or or did you go to her? Or if you didn't, why not? No, I, I never went to her. And looking back now, I should have, because that's what I believe is one of the, the main things to stay grounded. But, you know, you don't want your wife and your children to, to know what's going on. You know, so even that day when that man shot the two toddlers and, and killed himself, you know, she knew I had a SWAT call out. And, yeah, you know, I, I, I saw these two kids that were shot in the head and there was blood everywhere. And, yeah, you, you just it's something you just don't do because I didn't want her to worry about me. Right. And then later on during our divorce, we I learned that every time she heard a siren, it was like PTSD for her. Right. She, she would just it would trigger her like, OK, what's going on? What's what's happening? You know what I'm saying? It's um, I didn't know that at the time. You know, uh, another example of this is, you know, we have to we have to lay out what we want done in the case of our death. So who's going to notify our family? Um, you know, where do you want to be buried? Uh, all these different things. Right. One day I was working, I was working up in Napa in the hills up there, and there was no no phone reception. And normally we we spoke, you know, on on text at least uh, many times during the day. So I wasn't able to make a phone call. wasn't able to receive a phone call. One of my best friends, who was um, an officer also, he was on the list of being the one to notify my family. She couldn't get a hold of me, and then all of a sudden he just decided to stop by because he didn't know I was working overtime. He decides to stop by and say hello. She sees him through the window and the door, and she just has a panic attack. She freaks out, and it was nothing. But this shows you what the families of the officers have to go through also. You know, that they just don't know when you're coming home or if you're coming home. Right, and I think this is something that the general public doesn't think about. I'm not making right. excuses. There have been some cases in the media where there yeah. were some blatant things that oh. are wrong that shouldn't have happened. Um, yeah. But the media never talks about the thousands upon thousands of calls every single day where people go out and they do their job and they do it right. And I think a yeah. lot of times people don't also realize that the impact not only on the officer, but as you stated, the officer's family. And yeah. while I'm not making excuses for a lot of the travesties that have taken place, I think some people also don't realize that it's one thing to sit there and do an Monday morning quarterback, but it's another thing hmm. when you're in the line of fire and you're making split de- uh, split second decisions that can determine whether you live or die. So again, that's that's not an excuse for any of the wrong actions Correct. that have been taken. But I think those are things that the average person doesn't think about. So here we right. go. You're, you're you're seeing the worst of the worst. You've got your own issues that you really have nowhere to turn and no one to go to. You, you don't feel like you can go to anybody at work with, and keep your job. You can't talk to your wife about it. You don't have a relationship with God, so you don't have an outlet there. You have no outlet whatsoever. You've yeah. had situations where, like I said, you, you had a daughter where she was born with uh, some real complications. Uh, your marriage is deteriorating. You've got your own physical issues on top of your emotional issues. You've got PTSD on top of all of that, and we'll get into that on the second podcast. But your life is beginning to unravel. Tell us yeah. what is that, that, that? Tell us about the day of the tipping point. What happened and what prevented it? You, you know, there there was one tipping point, but it took a, a while to get there. So during during all this time, um, so I, I got divorced from my first wife because I just messed up the marriage. You know, I just mentally, emotionally, I wasn't there and, and she didn't deserve that. So, um, we were married young too, but that doesn't, it's just all my fault. But anyway, I met, met another woman. She had uh, three kids. So we ended up moving in together and, um, everything was going well there except for, of course, you know, my depression. I, I was so depressed and she begged me many, many, many times, please Norm, you know, I, I see changes in you. You know, you, you've got to see somebody, you got to see somebody. And of course, 
you know, somebody in my position is all like, Hey, you know, I, I'm good. You know, don't, don't worry about it. I, I got this. I, I'm a strong guy. I'm a cop. I can do this. And, um, so, so that's the, that stuff we go, go through, right? We just put it away. And then there was a time during my second marriage where beginning in, I think it was 2001, where I started requiring surgery. So I had to have um, 30 surgeries in a 10 year period. And it was just, it, it was just, this brought out all, all the symptoms of PTSD. You know, I, I would spend literally four months of the year rehabilitating and I burned up all my sick leave, all my vacation leave. But praise God, my, my bosses, I was well-respected. Back then, I was doing a real good job. And I, I had no other issues. And they didn't, they didn't, I think they knew something was wrong with the illnesses. But, you know, they never asked either. You know, so it's a systemic problem where even the bosses don't want to know what's going on. Because, you know, they, they look at their own mortality. So, um in between all the, the surgeries, the doctors kept feeding me opioids, opioids, op opioids for the pain. Well, if you know anything about neuropathy, neuropathy takes away the pain, right? You, you, the deadening of the nerves, you don't have any pain. And I'm not trying to blame the doctors here because the doctors are responsible for uh, mitigating the, the pain. But uh, I think maybe some of the doctors could maybe slow down on the prescriptions. But anyway, I found out by trial and error that the opioids, numbed me so my panic and anxiety attacks that i was having were no more right the, the more pills i took the more i zoned out i was just even keeled and wasn't wasn't depressed wasn't freaking out i wasn't hypervent not hyperventilating hypervigilant so i started taking the opioids to numb my emotions of the the ptsd and that started a real downward spiral. Right? That, that really did. And so in about, my mom died in 08, and I really never grieved that properly because I had all these other, you know, balls that I was juggling in the air. And then my daughter ended up getting diagnosed with liver tumors. And she was 24 at the time, and she was the same girl that um, needed the bone marrow transplant. And the thing about the transplant, why it affected me so much, is normally it's the siblings that have the direct DNA match. But with, with her, I was a direct match with her. So I was her for, for the bone marrow. And so I felt this more of a connection to her. I don't know if that's easy to understand or not, but because we're the same DNA. So when she got diagnosed with the tumors, I immediately went to a dark place. And I believe, you know, Satan was there to you know keep talking in your ear hey this is your fault look you have a flawed dna look look what your life is look at your diseases and i just thought it was my fault and because of my dna she was going to lose her life they told us that she had to have um three quarters of her liver removed and that only ucla medical center in la could do it and there was going to be only a 50 percent chance of survival i went off the deep end you know i, I eat more pills a suicide attempt. But the one night was, that was really kind of changed everything was when my team helped another team in an adjacent city. And I don't know if you all have seen on TV before, but when you go do a search warrant, the officers line up in a line and you basically, your left hand is on the left shoulder of the guy in front of you. And we all have our guns out and we're walking towards the house. Well, because of my feet, um, all the surgeries on my feet, I had no balance, right? I had to wear these braces. And the team knew that I suffered some leg problems, but not to the really extent they were. And I, I kind of lied to them about that. But the line was just to, hey, listen, if I can make another couple of years and, and be ready for retirement, everything will be good. And I know that was the wrong thing to do. I put a lot of people in danger, but that's the mentality of a warrior, right? Keep going, keep going, keep going. So I stepped in a pothole and um, I fell. And, you know, this is the humor that I talked about, right? The cryptic humor where they just started all laughing. You know, luckily we weren't in front of the house yet, but they started laughing. And um, I shrugged it off. But when on my way home from work, it really hit me. It, it just hit. I just started bawling my eyes out and, and thinking to myself, okay, I'm exposed, right? All my, my lies have been exposed. They see that I'm weak. They see that I can't do my job anymore. I'm not fit for duty. 
and I really didn't see any other way out except for suicide. So I pulled over and stopped that. Was there any concern when you were taking all these opioids that it was going to affect you being coherent enough to do your job that you might be putting yourself in even greater risk by being under the influence? Not for me, no, because they're prescription meds, right? How, I mean, how bad can they be? Pre- <laughs> these opioids back then wasn't as bad as, as it is now, right? And um, this was going to be 2007, 2008. Um, back then it was her- or heroin. Heroin was a bad thing. I'm not taking heroin. I'm taking prescription medications, right? It's, it's not that bad, but you're exactly right. That's what I was doing, right? And But there was a side of me, Jay, there was a side of me that basically wanted to, to die. I, I did a lot of dangerous things that were really against department policy. In my mind, I thought that if I could get myself shot and killed, I would go out a hero, Right. I wouldn't go out this this weakling, this 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 sissy that couldn't um, even do his job because of some stupid disease, right? I I never knew any other police officer that that um, had to leave the department because of a disease, right? That it it just doesn't happen, you know. You you either um, get injured and, and leave, or or you retire out. So you were totally right. I I, I put a lot of people in danger, and I, I regret those things. And um, praise God that nothing did happen. But my ego, my narcissistic um, tendencies kept me away from doing the right thing to save faith. When you were thinking about committing suicide, you mentioned in your book, you didn't go into detail, but you made some comment about you had remembered something about your daughter. What, what was it that, that was part of that preventative? I mean, obviously we know ultimately it was God, but some memory was brought to you yeah. that helped prevent that. What was that? Yeah, uh, I, I don't want to tell her whole story because this is her story, and I don't know if she wants to tell it. But my stepdaughter, she hooked up with this guy that really wasn't good for her. And um, her, her mom and I decided, and she was an adult, you know, so her mom and I decided, listen, if you want to choose this guy, you're going to have to get out of the house. And so she moved in with her cousin. And one, one night, this guy ended up getting drunk and um, high on drugs. And he came over there, and he tried to kidnap her. And he punched her a couple times, but she was able to run away. And he pulled a shotgun out of the, the car and, and tried to shoot her. And she, he shot six times and praise God, missed her. Then not, he didn't hit her once with double-up buck, but then he shot and killed himself. And this is where it's shame. I'm so ashamed. That's why I didn't want to tell the story, but I'm starting to tear up now. He was, when he shot himself in the head, he, he put the barrel under his chin and he blew off the side of his face. So he survived that, and when I I was you know taking her to court, I was trying to protect her by taking you know, helping her go to court and stuff for this guy. And the guy's side of it, I mean, he looked like Frankenstein. I mean, the the you know the the stitches and the it was just hor- horrific the damage that shotgun did. And having I just mentioned having some of these narcissistic tendencies and um, you know egotistical tendencies. Unfortunately, I thought of this guy the picture of that guy came into my mind saying, okay, if you don't kill yourself correctly, you're going to look like this guy. And I, I didn't think of my children. I didn't think of my wife. I didn't think of my parents. I, I thought about having a disfigured face. And that's why I didn't go into it. Cause it's, it's very shameful for me. It should be the first thing we think about, right. As our wife and kids. But I thought about myself first and, and that's, that's the things that Satan wants us to do, right. Think of our, ourselves and, I didn't want to look like him, so uh, I pulled the gun out of my mouth and didn't do it. Yeah, well, and it's very I, difficult to talk about. Yeah, I, I understand that, and I don't think honestly it's that uncommon. I remember uh, the day that I was going to end my life. That was my greatest fear, too. It was all about me. I wasn't thinking about what is this going to do to my mom and my dad and my yeah. two sisters. <clears throat> I, I didn't want to be a vegetable, and so I wanted to be sure right. that when I pulled the trigger that it actually killed me because I, I didn't want yeah. to be a vegetable sitting brain dead somewhere than my mom having to pull the plug or, or me yeah. living through it. So, no, I, I understand that. So let's fast forward a little bit. God, We know ultimately that it was God that prevented that. He used the memory of what that guy looked like to help deter it. Yeah. But, but the next thing you know, and I don't know how much later it was, but now you're, you are under arrest. The police officer who's done the arresting is now the one who's being pursued for arrest. Yeah. Walk us through yeah. that. 
So the 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 last suicidal attempt was um, was just three months, I believe. Three months before I, I went off the I really went off the deep end because um, I didn't want to lose my daughter, but I didn't want to live through you know any of that either. So it was a weird time for me. So this one day acquaintance of mine who used to be an officer with me at the city that I worked, he turned into be a private eye. And through this time, you know, I, he was asking me to um, like run license plates. In other words, check the registration, registered owner of a license plate, or maybe run the driver's license status of a person that, that he was working. Um, a lot of cops do it. I'm not trying to justify it in any way, but it technically it's illegal. Well, I shouldn't say technically it is illegal. It's illegal to access the, the, um, the computer system for personal use, right? Even if someone's but, under um, investigation, or, or, or they have to be under an investigation. Well, this was a private investigator, oh, okay. so he, he had his own private private security firm, and so um, it, it was illegal. It wasn't illegal for me to access it; it was part of my investigation. But because I was doing it for him, that was illegal. So. <laughs> He, I did that several times, and then I always thought he was just a frustrated cop, right? I thought that, you know, an ex-cop, I should say, and he just wanted to know. So he was actually an informant of ours because there was a lot of times when he came into um, into contact with customers who were, were addicts or, or dealers, and then he would, um, you know, give us some information. We'd actually arrest those people. But it... <laughs> So he, he called every every week he would call and say, Hey man, what's going on? How, how's everything going? And this one day in particular that we had seized some marijuana from a, a packaging store, you know, so we'd send the dog into the, the parcel post places and they would sniff out and they would, whenever they would alert to a package, we take it, we get a search warrant. And in this one, we found 10 pounds of marijuana. So, all the information on the sender and all the information on the receiver were all fake, you know? So what we do is it was going to the Midwest. So we called the Midwest police department. They didn't want it because it's only had marijuana in it. Marijuana nowadays is really not an important thing for most police departments. So that would go on the list to be destroyed. So I told him, yeah, we see some stuff. And so he goes, Oh, okay, well, all right. Talk to you later. So next week he calls up and goes, Hey, what are you going to do with that weed? And I said, well, we're going to destroy it. And then he, he came out outright blatantly just asked me, hey, um, you know, g- give it to me because um, I, I, I got some money issues and I could really sell it. And I was like, come on, no, that, you know, it's stupid. You know, I just thought he was joking. I, I never thought he was real. But it turned out that, that he was real. And, and later on, after several discussions, he basically said, hey, let's call your boss and, and let him know that um, you were doing running these license plates and stuff for me. And again, I'm not I'm, I'm telling you the story because it's a true story, but I'm I'm. I'm not trying to put the blame on him, right? I made all my own decisions, what, what, no matter what he did, because I should have done the right thing by calling my boss and saying, hey, this is what's going on. I might have gone a couple of months without pay or maybe even been fired. I, I don't know. But it would have been better than going to prison, right? I mean, <laughs> it would have been better. So I, I just want to make everybody understand that I am responsible for my own decisions, but and I'm just the, telling the, the story. Way, let me just say, I mean, that's one reoccurring theme that I've noticed in conversation with you. Whether it was your divorce, whether it was the chief, you take responsibility for all your actions, and I, I, I respect that. But anyway, keep, keep 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 going. Yeah, well, I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. Um, so I ended up with with the, 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 the opioids in your system. You basically justify everything, right? Again, I'm not blaming the drugs, but you, you justify everything. So I thought to myself, okay, they're going to be destroyed anyway. No one's going to notice. No one's going to see it. I'm just going to go do it, right? So we arranged a time where I, I gave him the 10 pounds of weed, and that was supposed to get him through his um, um, financial problems that, that he was having. And so at, a few weeks after that, then he came and said, <laughs> and said, hey, he, he needed some more money, and he wanted a pound of methamphetamine. And this is where I really I tried my best to, to say no. I said, no, that's a whole different level. Um, it was a pound of meth, methamphetamine that we seized that nobody was going to be charged with because of just the circumstances of the case, and it was just going to be destroyed also. And he, I basically, I don't want to say he talked me into it, but I stupidly agreed to, to give it to him. And so the one day where um, 
Was there um, a financial team, benefit for you in that as well? It, it wasn't supposed to be. He, he later gave me a couple thousand dollars. But at that time, I'm making well over $100,000. I, I didn't need $2,000. You know, it, this was more of I was afraid. I was afraid to get fired. I was afraid that my new wife, you know, she wasn't new at that time, but my, my wife would find out. You know, there's just a lot of stuff going through your mind when you're basically at almost rock bottom already. You know, I don't need this now. My wife, my, my daughter's sick. You know, I, I just uh, I just do it, get it over with, right? But you don't think about how, you use, you use the blackmail term is, is harsh, but it's a, a true term, an accurate term, but they never stop, right? It, once it's done, it, it, they never stop. And I never thought about that. I thought, okay, you know, I don't even know all the stuff that... I, I believe that, by is that common for a cop to be making a hundred thousand dollars that many years ago? Oh, out here in California, yeah. Yeah, I forgot I was yeah, California. Everything's yeah, you get paid a lot yeah. more. Everything's a lot more expensive. So and that, another question I have, is it difficult in a situation like that for a police officer to get access to drugs that were supposed to be destroyed? I mean, was that a real secret of operation for you to be able to even get that? It, yes, it is, but I was lieutenant, so I was high up, and I was in charge of the task force, so I had access to everything. I see. So uh, all I would have to do is go to where it was being stored at and sign it out. No questions asked. Now, I believe I, I never lied about about any of that. I signed my name to it. I mean, there was probably a million other ways I could have got it out without my name being attached, but um you can go through the, the, the records. I did not try to conceal anything. I even wrote a, um, a memo saying that I went to the to the, the place and had it destroyed by myself. Now, that right there was a, a, a huge, huge policy violation. Anytime there's drugs or money involved, there needs to be three agents with, with the money and the drugs. You never handle that stuff alone. And I believe that when I got audited, we get audited every year, that that would have came out. But I mean, that's just a, a side thing. I, I wasn't thinking straight, right? I wasn't. Right. Because uh, I mean, at that time I've been working about 16 years in narcotics. And the way I kind of like to, to say it is if I really wanted to sell drugs, I knew how to sell drugs, right? It's just, well, that's my job for 16 years. I did wiretap investigation, cartel investigation, smuggling, you name it. I've done it, and I, ha- I made no effort to conceal anything that I was doing, like, you know, counter-surveillance or, or using throwaway phones, anything like that, you know. It was, it was, as I look back now, I truly believe in my heart that I felt that I was too chicken to commit suicide, and this was the only other way out was to sabotage myself, right, self-destruction. Well, and, and I would think, too, that... I mean, as an outsider looking in, when you put this in the panorama of all the other things that were going on in your life with the PTSD, with the depression, with the situation with your kids, I mean, there is just a crock pot of problems here. And so probably rational thinking wasn't in alignment the way that it normally would be. Because even listening to the story, I would think that most people would go, well, once I give in to this first request, what's going to prevent him from coming back and saying the same thing again? Well, you gave me marijuana, and if you don't help me out on the next run, well, then I'm going to turn you in for that. I know right. that you exactly. weren't practically thinking, obviously. But yeah, yeah. I mean, especially as a cop, I mean, you're suspicious of everyone and everything. You know, it's just you're not you're not thinking straight. Once you, you know, I like the Bible says, you know, don't become intoxicated. It's the same. Once you you're, you have any kind of chemicals in your system, you, the thought process just goes away. And there's been several studies in um, on PTSD where the victims of PTSD often do self-sabotage. They also, the self-destructive things that they know for a fact are bad for them, yet they, they still do them. And, um, and, and that's, I think, what I did. And again, I'm not trying to use any excuses. but So the, the next day, basically... Um, my, my police department came to me and arrested me and um, sent me to jail. And I had to bail out of jail. So uh, three days later, I was able to bail out of jail because it's a complicated case. And when cause they already had a wiretap on me, on 
the other guy and me. So they already, someone already snitched about when the marijuana came out. So they were already listening to my phone calls and, you know, I wasn't doing anything else. I, I know there was accusations in the newspapers, but that they, they couldn't prove it, anything else because there was nothing going on. Cause they had my phone anyway. Um, and that's, that's when, when, after I bailed out of jail, that's when God entered my life. Wow. Well, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, matter of fact, that'd be a, there's so much to unpack. And again, this is going to be part one of a two part series. Uh, and you're out of jail. You're facing you're, you're, you're what? How many months out are you from trial? Or have you already played? Oh, well, the, well, I was going to plead guilty because I mean, I, I did it. There's no sense for me to, to fight it. Um, you I thought in the state process, it'd probably be six months and I would probably wind up in, in prison. Um, you know, I mean, I was hoping for some leniency and stuff, but um, because of, of, of my job, obviously they had to set an example, which, you know, I can't really blame them. But what they did is they took it federally because um, I knew a lot of the judges because of, of, I had a long career in this county and um, many hundreds and hundreds of search warrants that were signed by judges, you know, having lunch with some judges and stuff. And so they decided to take it federally. That way there would be no way any judge could, you know, look favorably upon me, you know, and they took it out of the district attorney's hands because I had built up this um, relationships with district attorneys, you know, and I get it. The problem with the federal system is it's a lot more um, time in prison. Right. So I mean, we when we get to it later, Ted. But yeah, I, I would have done less less than half the time I already already served if um, this was a state case. So you're you're out on bail right now, and mm-hmm. in this part of the story, you're out on bail. Mm-hmm. You pretty much mm-hmm. know that you're going to prison, and I've been yeah. in enough prisons to know that prisons a a really dangerous place, mm-hmm. especially yeah. when you're a police officer. So you you've got to be terrified knowing what's oh. ahead of you. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I'm scared to death. I'm a nervous wreck. Um, I'm, I'm, I keep looking out the windows. I mean, the, the press was parked in front of my house for days. Um, I couldn't the leave newspaper. the house. newspapers. Yeah. You know, all these articles coming out. And then of course, uh, my co-defendant who, who started all this, um, his attorney was leaking stuff, you know, that wasn't true, you know, in order to really, uh, sour the, the public and to sour a potential jury. You know, so it's just so much gamesmanship and, and, and games were being played that um, anyway, I was um, I was just I was just, I don't know what I was waiting for, but I was I thought that something bad was going to happen. I thought maybe a drive by shooting. I, I don't know what was going to happen, but um, so this I was out on bail for maybe a week, and so my wife and I are on the couch and we're watching TV, and, and of course, you know, I, I can't concentrate because you, like all this stuff we just talked about. So the phone rings and I'm almost afraid to answer it because of you know, all the phone calls. But um, I answered the phone and the guy introduced himself and said, Hey man, um, I'm Jeff, I'm pastor Jeff Kenny um, with the new hope international church. And I just wanted to call. I got your number from a friend of your father's and I heard what happened and we're just would like to invite you to church. And we got counseling here. And, you know, I, I really think that um, you know, we could go through this a, a lot easier you know, with, with the help of the church. And in my mind, you know, I'm thinking to myself, why is this guy calling me? You know, I don't want to go to church, you know? And, um, so I'm kind of, I'm, I'm really polite. My mom taught me to be polite, but I'm, I'm just blowing him off right now. Nah, you know, I think I'll be okay. You know, now, well, come and come to our church. I said, no, nah, you know, I don't think that's right for me. So did, did it seem odd that a guy that you know nothing about, I mean, did you, yeah. later, did you later find out, I mean, what was his angle? I mean, did he know uh, your father? Did he know a relative? Or no. was he just a pastor that read the article in the paper and was concerned about you? Well, well, let me, let me tell the end of the, the phone call first, and then I'll go into that. <clears throat> so he says to me, okay, before I hang up, is it okay if I pray for you? And I said, sir, you know, in my mind, I'm more sarcastic. Yeah, knock yourself out, whatever you want to do. I, I had no really idea. I mean, besides the German prayer that I learned, I, I don't know anything about praying. I don't even know how to pray. And um, he says the sinner's prayer, right? I had no idea what the sinner's prayer is. And at the end, he says, can um, you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And I didn't know what to say, and I didn't want to be mean, so I said, sure, yeah. He goes, well, my 
doors are always open. Please call me if you need anything. We're, we're, we just want to love on you and, and, and we want to help. So I hang up. So, so later on, we became good friends. He's my spiritual father now. But yes, he, he was uh, one of his parishioners was a friend of my father. And um, so she gave him my phone number because my dad said, yeah, go ahead and call him. It's okay. You know, um, he didn't know me. He didn't know who I was, or what I was about or, or anything. Um, he told me later that the Holy Spirit just put a, upon him to, um, to call me, you know, and, and to say the, the, the sinner's prayer, right? I mean, well, where does that come from? Instead of just saying, okay, well, we're here for you and goodbye. No, the sinner's prayer. So I, I think this is all God ordained. I mean, everything, everything that happened, God allowed for a purpose. I mean, if, if when we talk about it later, I can look, I can show you the indicators that I see now that I didn't see then that was leading me to God, you know? So we, um, uh, on, we went to church. On, that, uh, hang on. Oh. Now you gotta, we're gonna, I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're uh, 53 minutes into it. We're going to stop this podcast and we're going to leave everybody hanging on a limb. And, Uh-oh. Yeah. We're going to leave them hanging on a limb. We're going to leave them right here. And they are going to have to tune in to uh, our next podcast to get the rest of the story. And believe you me, we have just touched on a bit of it. And one of the great things about the next podcast we're going to do, not only are we going to finish the story about this miraculous conversion and how you came to Christ, uh, we're also going to talk a little bit, too, about um, what actually happened if you did get sent to prison and how long you were sent and even more we're going to talk about uh, PTSD and trauma and how to deal with it. So we're going to leave you hanging right there for all those of you listening today. Uh, man, what a what a blessing, Norm. Just absolutely amazed by this story. And by the way, let me go ahead and mention it before we close out today's podcast. Norm wrote a book. You've heard me reference it several times during this podcast. I haven't been able to read all of it. I've read quite a bit. It's a phenomenal book. It's entitled Healing a Broken Heart. And the subtitle is Christ-Centered Healing of Trauma. It's by Norm, and let me spell his last name for you. It's W-I-E-L-S-C-H. It's pronounced Welsh. And by the way, before we close out this podcast, Norm, how can people reach out to you or get a copy of this book? They can go to my website, which is christ-centeredhealing.com. And there will be a link to it there to the publisher. Or you can go on Amazon. It's on Amazon, too, under Christ-Centered Healing or my name. That sounds great. Well, Norm, thanks for being a guest on today's podcast. I can't wait for part two. And uh, those of you listening, hang on, because uh, next podcast, part two of Norm Welsh. Okay, Norm, going great.